0: A podcast dedicated to insight and analysis of the trends and topics addressing the field of higher education. My name is Roland Moe, and I'm your host. We've been talking about in a series of podcasts, emergent scholarship, what it means for knowledge in the professoriate and in the academy to be construed and constructed outside of a very traditional scientific discovery model. Application, synthesis, teaching and learning. My guest this podcast is Dr. Martin Weller of the Open University. He's a professor of educational technology there and currently the director of the OER Hub research team that examines the impact of open educational practices. Martin has been working here for over 20 years. He was the chairperson of the Open University's first major e-learning course with 15,000 students enrolled back in 1999. Now, Martin has written two books, The Battle for Open, and the one that we spoke of in our interview, The Digital Scholar. Writing The Digital Scholar in 2011, Martin was thinking about how the work of scholarship was changed by the affordances of technology. So looking at the work of Ernest Boyer and scholarship reconsidered, and then practice of what that means in a digital realm. And so we had an opportunity in 2018 to discuss what this scholarship looks like. And it's really fascinating to think about how a generation has gone by since Boyer first wrote, and seven years have gone by since Martin's contribution. But the practices in most educational administrations and institutions still remain the same we still highly value that scientific discovery model of education, of knowledge, of learning. And so what does that mean twofold? One, how are faculty in the professoriate engaging with knowledge because of these expectations at the early part of their career? But second, what knowledge are we lacking because this is the focus on what we produce in these spaces? Martin and I had a fascinating conversation on this, so let's jump right into that. Martin, thank you so much for joining us for a conversation today. My first question is about The Digital Scholar. You wrote this book in 2011. Somewhat as a response to Ernest Boyer's work from the late 80s and early 90s, I'm interested in where you see the conversation in 2018. What changes have been made in the way we think about scholarship and the way people practice scholarship both at a faculty level as well as an administrative and university-wide level? And where are the places that we still need better engagement?
1: You're asking at a good time, so I've just written a paper which is the Digital Scholar Revisited. I got asked to do it for a journal about digital scholarships. I've kind of, I have been thinking about these things. There are many ways you can approach digital scholarship and I chose that partly because I thought it provided a nice kind of bridge, you know, you weren't coming with just a foundation and lots of claims about new technology, but you could Basing it in existing practice conceptual framework that people had more or less accepted, you know, you can, there are other takes on what constitutes scholarship. Some people have seven activities, whatever, you know. But Boyer's kind of as well accepted. And then in in the book, you could then say, okay, for each of these areas, what's the potential change and also potential issues? And that was the kind of key. If there was a key message from the book, it was that across all four of those areas, you could see kind of potential change already happening and further potential to happen. But at the time, there had been quite a, a sort of raft of studies done in sort of 2009 2010 this is kind of just after the web 2.0 explosion when look at academics use new, new technologies and they were kind of generally all coming right to the same sort of conclusion which was an approach with caution attitude there was a study done about early career researchers they were saying they were advised you know, don't waste time on this blogging stuff and other people viewed it as dangerous and kind of that kind of stuff so there was a kind of very cautious attitude about it at the time which is you know not untypical of, of academia I think and so, so revisiting, as you say, seven years later, it's a kind of a mixed picture in a way. I think in some ways, it's not much has changed at all. You could still argue that there's that kind of approach with caution and you know, uh, attitude, um, and some people are sceptical about it and those kind of things. But I think, I think at the time, we were all caught up in the idea of revolutions. You know? Everything has to be a revolution. But I think what you've actually seen is just kind of a much more gradual, progressive adoption of these things. I pulled out five themes, I thought, that have kind of changed since 2010, 2011. This was just based on my experience, not kind of any sort of semantic analysis. Uh, The first was mainstream. So as I've said, not much has changed. I think you have seen a kind of just gradual adoption. So you'll see research funders will ask for uh, dissemination through other means they you know it's not unusual to meet an academic with a blog or a twitter profile as it was in 2010 so there's a kind of general acceptance this is a, a useful thing to do you know there are there are new research methods we can use such as social network analysis, those kind of things. so there's been a kind of mainstream of that approach uh, and in, a lot of universities will try and promote academics to have an online identity those kind of things and they think it's good for their profile so it's, it's accepted as a as a good thing or a, a, as a thing anyway that takes place in academia. Uh, the second element was what I called the shift to open and, and in some ways the digital scholar, digital scholarship was a kind of term that was around at the time but it, it might have been better titled the open scholar I think because the, the digital part isn't really interesting you know if you if you just create your, your PowerPoint slides and store them on your hard disk that's digital but it's not very interesting. It's, it's the open practice that, that's interesting that kind of builds on that digital network infrastructure with use of OERs, open access policies, MOOCs even, we're kind of seeing a much more acceptance of open practice being important in, in education. The third theme was kind of bringing those two together, which was policy development. So I don't know if you have this in the US, but lots of countries have any publicly funded research, the papers that come out of that research published and that have to be published open access. And in the UK, we have this thing called the Research Excellence Framework. So every four years, universities are judged on their their research excellence and they get a grading and openness is now part of that so kind of how open you are in the learning environment so they they look for that and we've got oer policies uh, across europe so you are kind of seeing policies put in place either institutional regional or national level in the u.s you have quite a lot of uh, open textbook policies for instance so that's a kind of formalization so i think that those three first three kind of speak of a a mainstreaming and uh, a maturity about digital scholarship I think perhaps the, the area of digital scholarship that's progressed the most is um, this one of network identity or online identity for academics. The sort of people who get invited to give keynotes, for instance, are people who have a good online reputation, not necessarily a good publication record. You know, So, so that kind of online reputation is, is seen as very important. And often that does allow kind of early career researchers to build up their own reputation or PhD students can almost a slightly democratized space although it's also true that tenured staff tend to have quite large twitter followings, for example so i think this kind of and also some kind of critical thinking so people like bonnie stewart who write about network identity and, and george valencianos is very good in this area that's been the kind of biggest area of interest and i think that the last theme that i pulled out was criticality of ed tech so when i wrote the book i tried to kind of be balanced but i think at the time there was a sense that people were trying to sort of say this stuff's all rubbish and you know, as i said there was a kind of approach with caution attitude and so you tend to be a bit less willing to criticize it and you ended up with either kind of being an advocate or a, a cynic and a critic of it and those kind of two extremes i think what we're seeing now is a as it matures is this kind of much more uh, critical take and for good reason we can't deny the dark side of twitter for instance and those kind of things so i think there's a, a sense that it's it's not just a fun place to be anymore and certainly for certain groups of people who, are, who might be marginalised in normal, in traditional society, if like face-to-face society, then they are also marginalised and perhaps even more so uh, online. Uh, and the abuse that people can receive can be quite vitriolic and death threats, those kind of things. So it, it can be quite extreme. So I think we are seeing kind of much more critical stance on educational technology and people like Orgy Walters who write about the kind of Silicon Valley, ed tech startup mentality and particularly kind of gender bias in that. So we're seeing a lot of that and that's kind of become accepted more, I think, as a, as a valid argument to take. So th- those are my five themes. And I think you can almost then create a, a four by five grid, as, as as academics like to do. So you've got Boyer's four activities down the side, discovery, application, integration and teaching, and then the five themes across the top. And for each of the, the cells in that table, you could then sort of think of examples of, of where that's that's evident. Mainstreaming of discovery might be the use of social media to disseminate research, use of social network analysis as a research tool, and, and it's used to kind of develop projects and, and to collaborate. So I think that gives a kind of a theme to how it's developed.
0: The 2011 book starts off with looking at the newspaper and the music industry and the change there, dare I say disruption, that happened, and you at one point say, is education just five years behind this? Is education more complicated and won't be affected by this? What's, uh, you know, what is the future going to hold? Looking at that, how many of us looked at newspaper and music uh, distribution governance operation as a potential klaxon for what's going to happen to higher education? Thinking about that seven years later, was that an apt metaphor?
1: I don't think it was a great example, actually. I think, and, and even at the time, it was kind of was a commonplace analogy to draw. But even then, I was sort of saying it's just, it's also important to realise why it's not like those things, it's not like those industries. So um, I think I've come to appreciate even more over the intervening years kind of how much of a complex hybrid organisation universities are. And we often talk about uh, this idea of unbundling educational services. And we've seen bits of that, but I, I, it didn't happen nearly as much as people kind of predicted. In some ways, you know, education is, is is remarkably resilient to to all the all the proclamations of its demise and things. It's like it kind of keeps going, and I think that's because it is it is complex and messy. And so, you know, you could see MOOCs were an attempt to do that, and, and after the, the the MOOC bubble's gone, they kind of settle down into a, a useful. And I'm not been disparaging about MOOCs think they kind of have a certain useful function but this whole idea that they were going to sweep away universities and people like Clay Shirky were saying you know, MOOCs are the internet happening to higher education it's like well you know, the internet had happened quite some time ago to higher education and indeed it had been quite one of the drivers in in its development so um, I think the interrelationship so when we talk about um, unbundling you think about services as providing content accreditation recognition and support and services and all those other things. The common example, like other industries, unbundled. You know, like car sales, we used to get finance, secondhand cars, servicing, and new cars in one place. But education is just much more complex than that. And I think unbundling those services is much more difficult because it's complex. It's a convenient bundle for learners. You know, it's like you're. In some ways, a lot of those kind of product and content services analogies are poor because if you're buying a car or tv or just consuming content or netflix or whatever it is i kind of know what i'm doing whereas the whole point of being a learner is you don't know what you're doing that's why you're learning it's like so there's this whole uh minos paradox thing so you kind of need that guidance and the higher education bundle which is by no means perfect um Provides it in one kind of package for you. It's like, so I get i get my cohort, study with other people is important. I don't necessarily want to study my own. I get the timetabling, I get told which content, I get supports, so I get recognised at the end of it, and I can demonstrate that. If you try and do all those things yourself, it actually becomes really complicated. I'm not sure there is a particularly good analogy around. I've, I've come to think that, and this is often something that educators say, like, we're special, you know, and we're different. There are some bits that are kind of similar, you know, like you can see the reduction in costs of certain things and democratization of services. I've just been writing about video, for instance, and kind of how since 2005 that's become a, the entry into that space has become much lower and anyone can do it and students can do it those kind of things. So there are kind of areas you can see it has an impact. But actually I think education is just fairly unique and that, that's probably why the model has persisted for so long. You know, it's like We keep being told education needs to change by companies that have been around for five years <laughs> whereas universities have been around for quite some time so we've just done a study for icde which is the international community of distance education universities and we were looking at uh, what they called ufat the, the acronym was open online flexible and technology enhanced learning and we kind of did a global survey of um, how universities are using either online learning or flexible approaches open approaches and it's a very mixed picture it's rarely that one size fits all kind of the, you know what what you need to do in the philippines will be different from what you do in uh, california say and if you're trying to reach vocational learners that might be different and if you want to kind of teach at a distance or if you're doing a blended approach so universities are adopting this technology but in very different ways to kind of meet the the different needs of their audiences i think it's much more of a a kind of gradual adoption than than
0: a kind of wholesale revolution that we kind of saw Often people will get into an us versus them game, and in thinking about emergent scholarship, it can be faculty versus administration, that faculty see a value in something and the administration says no, that's not what we're going to value. What I have found in research and in my own practical work is administrators traditionally are supportive of what faculty wish to do. The places that are pushing back are often the guilds themselves or accreditors who have expectations of what things are supposed to look like. And so the conversation we're having around emergent scholarship is supported at many institutions, but it's difficult to get legs in order to move forward. So you have this interesting space where faculty want to do something, and administration would be supportive, but it's not supported by the outside guild or the outside network or the accreditors. They're looking for some different sort of evidence, or they haven't fully accepted this space. And by the time things are accepted, the emergence has worn off and we're producing very much the same thing. There's an old New York cartoon that says, thanks, John, for the innovative presentation. Now let's all vote to do things the same way. And that traditionally can be the case in this space. So how do you negotiate that area between what people want to be doing and where they see the value and the obstacles externally that keep them from being able to engage that?
1: So first of all, I think often that there's you get a kind of clash of cultures or you're trying to serve two different masters. Christina Costa calls it kind of double game when you're trying to play the, the traditional scholarship game and the, the digital scholarship game. And often the, the discipline culture and the online culture don't don't always mesh easily. I, I used to argue that, particularly when it was new, bloggers in different disciplines probably had more in common than uh, a blogger and a non-blogger in the same discipline. And I think there is an issue. So, so first of all, if you look, you're thinking about uh, promotion, tenure, those kind of things, one argument is just to say, actually, don't view them as in competition. A good digital scholarship profile is complementary to a, a traditional scholarship profile. And so if actually the things you care about are your H index, citations, keynote invites, being on research collaborations, those kind of things, having a good online profile benefits all of those things. So you could just say, we don't actually care about what it is you're doing over here. We're not going to try and measure the digital scholarship thing. It's measured by proxy, by influencing these, the kind of things that we do know how to measure. Because we, we know that open access publications get more citations, for instance, and if, you, uh, if you've if you got a good Twitter and blog network, then publishing your papers that way will increase uh, citations and those kind of things, and also you'll get keynote invites. So I think there's that kind of whole thing. It could just influence the things we already recognise. But having said that, I think... Um, that could be problematic. And it does maybe limit the innovation you want. So we've toyed at this at the Open University, and we have changed the promotion criteria. I forget the exact wording, but it's something like, to become a senior lecturer, you need to demonstrate uh, excellence in your field as evidenced by research publications or other digital means. So it's up to you then to make the argument, look, my blog that gets you know a million hits a year is as good as these research articles that get. 50 citations a year but I I don't know but we haven't got a kind of easy metric for that you know it's not like 10 blog views equals one citation and there's not kind of a match-up so so it is a kind of question of judgment and often the people who sit on promotion panels got there through the traditional means so that they're exactly not the people who can judge whether this is a, a good record or not so I think what you then rely on are often getting experts recognized experts outside the university to comment on this person's expertise and whether it's valuable and I think there's always a danger of of gamification in, in all this you know it's like so as soon as you say if you get lots of hits on your blog or if you get a big twitter network that means you're a good academic then people will just you know find ways around that system and just try and get as much traffic or whatever as they can um, and that that doesn't constitute good academic practice and also some fields you know will be necessarily small if you're writing about climate change or sports or something you may have a big following but if your field is medieval dance i don't know then <laughs> that might be quite a small field so you so you can't just base it on numbers it has to be about the a uh, much more kind of qualitative view so i think kind of building up that portfolio approach is important and the other thing is we try to provide space for these things so i think whether that's recognition through we have study space and study time uh, allocated and, and recognising you know if you want to go off and explore how to use wordpress on my course that's a valid thing to do with your your study time so recognizing that that kind of stuff's valid and teaching awards are also another good model for that. you know we're looking for excellence you you and you try and model the type of practice that you would like to see so people do see that it's valued and and recognized and often you do see this kind of mixed message from institutions like yeah you know we want people to go out there and do this kind of stuff and then the people who get promoted are straight up publishing in the, in the top journals and not you know not doing any of this other work the institution needs to send the right signal through various means
0: Earlier in this conversation, you noted that the title of your book, The Digital Scholar, maybe should have been The Open Scholar, and you've already written a book, The Battle for Open, which you wrote after Digital Scholar, of course. For somebody who's new to this field and rethinking what knowledge and scholarship mean, it can be somewhat overwhelming to have open scholarship and digital scholarship and public scholarship and emergent scholarship, all of these different facets. And where are the differences and where are the similarities? So could you kind of tease out what you see as paramount to this notion of, to try and put it all into one space, contemporary scholarship? The
1: digital scholarship and the open scholarship are kind of part of the same thing, really. And I think there is a tension, I think, for early career researchers who maybe feel they don't want to be exposed to ridicule or, or whatever. So I, I give a talk sometimes called The Paradoxes of Digital Scholarship. Part of that what I've come is instead of just being an advocate about these things, I've come to realise that there are conflicting things about it which are true simultaneously. So it is both a democratized space. So you can be a, a new person at voice and it's just it's not based on your, your reputation, your formal reputation, it's just based on the quality of your input into that community. And if you've got interesting things to say and if you engage with people whether it's through twitter blogs or whatever in a meaningful way and they can then very quickly you'll kind of develop a good reputation and at the same time people who are marginalized will be also marginalized uh, even further online so it can increase that effect of them being outside of the mainstream and i think so i think one thing we need to be very clear about is i don't want to force people to go online i think you know it's a route that if people want to that kind of stuff and be open then it needs to be recognized and allowed you know, I, I speak as a, you know, a white European middle-aged man who writes about education technology. It's not a particularly dangerous topic, and my experience of online is very different from many other people. You know, so, so you can't, you wouldn't want to be forcing people to go online and perhaps be exposed to to harm. You know, I have colleagues who write about climate change, for instance. You know, and that's a topic that people have many different <laughs> conspiracy theories about, and you know, and it can be really hard work to kind of negotiate those kind of conversations online. So it's a being that public intellectual or you know public scholar it's a difficult thing and and institutions need to be prepared to support that because they may find that people will complain about them or want to kind of just kick up a fuss because of various agendas um, so i had a colleague who tweeted out at a conference that he disagreed about uh, something the speaker was saying and the speaker and, and the speaker tried to get them sacked and caused a real problem about it it will kick up so Institutions themselves, you know, need to be prepared to support staff and uh, and back them up in the situation.
0: As you noted, you just wrote revisiting the digital scholar. In seven more years' time, when you're asked to re to write revisiting revisiting the digital scholar, what do you see as significant today that will remain significant at that point? And are there any places that you think perhaps? things will change in a different direction.
1: So I'm writing a blog series at the moment um, called 25 Years of EdTech. I'm sort of going through each year and pulling out one significant education technology. And as I'm doing that, I think one kind of recurring theme that keeps coming up is education needs several runs at something before it gets it right. For instance, learning objects didn't take off, but then OER sort of did and maybe a bit more with open textbooks. So I think we see in what you'll probably see is just existing things becoming more successful and things we thought had faded away so for instance it's commonplace now to laugh at the idea of second life islands and those kind of things but I I wonder whether something like kind of virtual worlds particularly now that we've seen Minecraft the popularity of that having another bite of that cherry if you like in an educational term so I think you might see some of those things sort of trends we've seen before recurring. Uh, we had an interesting conversation about at, at the OER conference about what will happen when people who've come through the system start to become educators who have been used to using open material. What will be their relationship to content? I was half joking when I said, you know, we've kind of dismissed the whole idea of digital natives, but is there a kind of OER native coming through the education system now, which who will have used, you know, particularly if they're exposed to open textbooks, but we'll just get much more used to kind of taking, remix and sharing stuff. And what will those people be like when they're educators in 2025? You know, whatever. Um, so I think that that use of material. I think I, I don't like. So I'm not big on the idea that we're going to be using blockchain for accreditation and AI tutors. So I think all those kind of things keep coming. around. I think what you usually see with these things is some small scale use in particular applications that, that is beneficial. So so I think. We'd be in a similar situation in that it kind of looks the same and yet when you look closer, it, there's quite a lot of difference going on. It's like, so at a macro level, not much has changed, but at the micro level, you see a lot of individual change. The use of video, for instance, for formal assessment is still kind of underused, I think, video as part of formal assessment. And That kind of seems a missed opportunity. And I think, and part of that's around, I think, developing literacies or knowing what a good video assignment would look like, for instance. I think we know what a good essay looks like. We've kind of had that experience, but I think we just will develop more of those things so you'll begin to see these a lot of things that are kind of medium now will become much more
0: kind of commonplace. Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. You can follow Martin on Twitter at M Weller or find his blog at techie.net where he discusses a number of things, including a fascinating blog on filmmaking. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Edutechnicalities. Join us again on this special topic of emergent scholarship and rethinking Ernest Boyer in the 21st century, as well as the other special topics that make Edutechnicalities what it is, a place for a deep dive and introspection on the topics and themes inherent to the practice and future of education today. My name is Roland Mill. Thanks again for listening. Goodbye.